I thought three years ago, and I still believe this now, that Sagent is the best opportunity in the mortgage space, hands down, for a number of reasons, right? That was why I joined, you know, and frankly, why we're able to kind of build this level of talent. Because, you know, when you see that, people typically want a couple things, right? They want to love the people they work with. They want to have like a great mission and they want to have fun and they want to win, right? If you can kind of put those things together, then, you know, you're not grinding out work every day, right? You're out having a great time. That's what we have here. Hey folks, this is Clayton Collins, your host for the Housing News Podcast. And if you are an avid housing news listener, you know a little bit about my background as an M&A banker and an acquirer. I get excited every time I have the chance to talk to executives about consolidation and M&A and the, the tech and fintech space and in the mortgage origination space. So when Dan Segorka, our guest today, the CEO of Sagent, and I were planning this conversation and to talk about some of the impacts and opportunities of deal making, consolidation, and mortgage tech. I got really excited, but I didn't even know how good this conversation could be. Today, Dan and I talk about the impacts of fintechs acquiring businesses and innovating and building new products on the back of acquisitions through their integration plans. We talk about mortgage servicing and some of the trends that have happened over the last few years and the impacts of technology on the mortgage servicing space, specifically with how that relates to IMBs retaining more servicing over the last few years and releasing some servicing over the last 12 months. Dan and I have a really open and honest conversation about private equity and venture capital and operating mortgage tech and businesses in the housing ecosystem in this incredibly cyclical market that we live in. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dan Segorka and find value in the expertise that he's gained through 23 years of operating businesses in the mortgage technology ecosystem. So Dan, I was really looking forward to this, this conversation. Like Even since my time at, at housing wire i've i've seen you and and your capacity as a president of a business unit at, at black knight president of exos at, at service link cro and then ceo at uh at cloud verga and then i think for the last three years at sagent now right yeah yeah it'll be three years in march yeah that's fascinating like three years leading sagent and, and growing and um it, it hasn't been uneventful i've seen you build an incredible team seen some deals so like can I back up earlier in your story? Like, how did you get involved in the the mortgage tech or, or mortgage world? Um, you know, before you know, I started seeing you and watching you make an impact at Black Knight. Yeah, yeah, no, um, it's funny. I was thinking a little bit this morning about this this talk, and and there's so many this this topic can go in so many different directions, and it's just it's fascinating to me. But you know, if you rewind back, I've been doing mortgage technology for like 23 years, essentially. And um, where I started was really where a lot of the technology in the space came from. And it was really from the title companies. So if you think of the big players in the space, you know, you had um, FNF, right? And, um, and First American, which are, you know, the two largest, you have Stewart and you have Land America. A lot of the technology kind of came out of those companies, right? CoreLogic came out of First American. Yep. Black Knight essentially came out of FNF. You know, all everything kind of comes back to there. Um, 
And so when I started, it was uh, a, 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 at a company which was really small at that point, um, was really C Technologies. And it was really connecting lenders to the title companies. And the alternative was paper and fax, right? So I, I'd go around to these, these companies, um, these branches of lenders that are mostly no longer around, right? Um, you know, union planners or whatever, you know, that, that just don't, they got gobbled up by larger banks. And you'd have processors that would have like sticky notes by state that said like, if in Virginia, order from Stewart Title, you know, and, and that was how, you know, so they'd pick up the phone and call and you'd never know, right? And so then, you know, the, all that, that technology path, which was really like 10 years, was just wiring that, right? So t- taking these transactions that occur and then automating or basically moving them online. And, and every, almost every single technology that exists in mortgage today, it basically came from that, you know, like it's, it's like you have these offline manual people-based transactions and all along the way, people are saying, well, how do we do this in a better, faster, cheaper, more efficient, more compliant way? And that's essentially the mortgage technology industry. That's a really interesting angle to talk about how technology initiated in the title space and then through a lot of deals have kind of rolled out of those title companies. Because in the last five years, we've seen the opposite of that. We've seen title companies becoming acquirers of technology. Even even Cloud Virgo was acquired by by Stuart. So like we've seen these companies, technology businesses that have like in Cloud Virgo's case, I think rolled out of a lender, independent the title, like a kind of a, a reversal of that trend that you're pointing at from earlier in your career. That's right. It's just, it's been a really interesting cycle. And I think a lot of it, you know, is also tied to the, the broader economic trends, the, the housing trends, the, um, the really the arrival of uh, a lot of VC money into our industry, which 20 years ago didn't happen at all, you know? And, and so, you know, the companies of 20 years ago, I think because one of the reasons, you know, because they came out of these title companies, which are very disciplined financially. Right. So even though, you know, you were a tech startup and, and I was I was running these different technology companies, you had to make money. You, di- you didn't go into your annual meeting and uh, and tell Bill Foley you, your plan was to lose 10 million dollars that year. Right. Like that. That's not how it happened. Right. You, you, you very much had to make money. And that kind of went away when all the VC money came into the space, right? Then it was like grow at all costs. And, and uh, you know, it was all about um, top line and not the bottom line. But you see now when the cycle turns, the rug gets pulled out from underneath you. And all of a sudden people wake up and they say, no, you th- I think I actually want to make money. I don't think I want you to lose a whole bunch of money, right? So it's just interesting how it goes. Our little vertical of fintech and the the mortgage and housing tech space was was one of the last niches to really start getting the the attention of of VCs. We saw the venture dollars flowing into a lot of other fintech verticals years, if not a decade, before we really saw a ton of interest in the in the real estate space. Why do you think that? that cycle played out that way and like when venture and private equity money really started like heading toward this uh, mortgage tech prop tech ecosystem, however we wanted to define it. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give a couple of stories that maybe kind of lead us there. Right. So one was, um, you know, I talked about how a lot of the technology came out of these bigger companies, right? So if you go back 
to, um, you know, way, way back to 2015, right? 20, 2016, right? Which seems so, so long ago, but you really only had, you had kind of a couple big companies and barely any startups, you know, and the, and the chasm between the small companies and the big companies was really big, right? So you had, you had maybe, this is called 20 companies that were like 10 million or less in revenue. And then you had the really big companies on the, on the other side of that. And the, the platform really is, is king in this space. And I, I've said that a lot for years, right? Because if you don't have kind of um, uh, whatever you want to call it, transactional relevance or a way to insert yourself into this broader thing that's happening, you can't get traction as a company, right? So like, think about like, if if you own the LOS, right? And, and ICE and Ellie Mae have been a great example of this, right? Like when they control that ecosystem, you can't be there unless they let you in, right? And so it's very hard to compete if you're not a part of a platform. So the platforms kind of controlled the space. And then the opportunity for small companies was, if the platform kind of fell asleep at the wheel or made the wrong call relative to a niche slice of technology. Great example of that is the point of sale, right? So that was really the start to me of this next phase of um, investment, right? From the, from the, the VC per- perspective was, you know, and Blend and Roostify were kind of the first two and Cloud Verga to a, a smaller extent um, to kind of break in and say, oh, this is a new thing and it's not, a part of the LOS, but it's on the front of it. And they carved out this niche that then everybody decided they needed, right? So the the, the LOS companies were pretty, um, I would say, overconfident at that point, And they missed that opportunity, right? They, they were still thinking in the last decade's paradigm um, of... Uh, Wells Fargo will never use a small company. They only want a big balance sheet company. They're, they're never going to do that. So those guys aren't going to get any traction. That was wrong, right? And then as soon as Wells went and did that deal with Blend, off to the races, right? And then people saw from the investment community all the things about real estate that they love, right? It's a giant TAM it's always kind of going to be there. It's the American dream. It's housing. It's the biggest capital markets, you know, uh, um, pool of money. You know, it's a trillion plus dollars, like all the things that make investors start salivating. But they don't understand a lot of them, the complexity of the space, the compliance needs of the space, the cyclicality of the space, right? I talk to a lot of my, my friends and peers that have investors that are like horrified with what's going on now, right? And they're like, "How could you let this happen?" And the and and my friends are like, "What do you? I didn't let this happen. Like the cycle turned, and this is what happens, right? It goes up and down. It's kind of a boom and bust industry, and that's hard for investors who are not kind of born and bred in the space." Yep, it's a uh, yeah. There's a lot a lot to uh, un- unpack there, Dan. So I want to I want to come back to talking about cyclicality and the impacts on investing in the space and building in this space. I want to jump back to the the paradigm you mentioned and like the specifically um, talking about the evolution of technology and how it was like paradigm one was technology being built by the industry by title companies to enable processes, and then we saw. This paradigm, in in my viewpoint, you can tell me if you feel differently, of solutions and services to enable existing players to be more efficient and integrate technology in their businesses. 
And then we saw this paradigm or, or wave of disruptors who said, hey, I'm not going to build technology for you. I'm going to build technology and disrupt you. And now we're onto a new paradigm. How, how do you think about like those, those waves? And if, if you agree with the way I've kind of like split those out into four distinct paradigms? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's an interesting way to look at it. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, you, you also have to, you have to look at the business models that kind of drive what, what people are doing. Right. And, and you have like, you know, origination and, and, you know, kind of went through that cycle and we're not there anymore. Right. So like, like the origination only entities that were building and buying technology to enable faster origination are, are not doing well right now. Right. Because we're not, we're in, we're in a cycle where there's not a lot of origination and we don't know when they will be again. So, you know, it's like, what do you do? Do you sit and wait? Um, do you cash in your chips, right? What, whatever. And then for us right now, servicing is extremely important, right? And now this business that people used to use kind of as a hedge and, and, you know, more or less said, well, let's break even on servicing and then we'll, that'll drive our origination. And that's where all the profit is. Now people are saying, well, wait, like this business should be more efficient. And why isn't it? You know, and, and to me, that was my, you know, the, the one of the um, enticing things about joining Sagent was like this, this, again, to use your word, this paradigm of servicers essentially are break even and want to avoid being in the spotlight for big issues, you know, negative headline issues. And yet the technology they use, the leading technology player in that space has like this massive margin profile, like all the money's going there and no one else is making any money, right? Like that seemed like out of balance and how that, that seemed like there could be an opportunity there to go in and say, well, what if the technology was kind of better, faster, cheaper and servicers could actually make money and be better for consumers? That seemed like a, you know, kind of a home run opportunity in the space. And again, you have to, to, to your point, like you have to get the timing of the cycle right. And it's always hard to do, right? So I think you had people come in and then say, oh, I want to disrupt this space, right? You had people say, I'm going to, I'm going to come in. I'm going to raise a bunch of money. I'm going to disrupt the servicing space, the servicing technology space, because it's all jacked up and Black Knight stinks. And I'm going to come and do that. But what they realize is like, oh, wow, that takes a lot of money to do and a long time. And in a willing end market who actually wants to bring in new technology and agrees with your viewpoint on the timing of the evolution. That's right. And a regulatory environment that embraces it. And, and it's one of those things where um, you can't, um, there's a million analogies on this, but, but whatever. It's like, you can't use it till it's all done, right? You can't like go in and be like, hey, we're two months in, you can start getting some value. Like you got to build the whole thing and then say, here you go. Now start moving all your loans onto it. That is like a lot to bite off. And I think in a cycle with zero interest rates and essentially free money, you can play that game, but now you can't, right? So um, this, this next cycle we're in and you see it, you know, in all the analyst reports and anything that the people talk about in the space is like, it's really hard to raise money right now if you're burning cash, right? It's essentially impossible. So you're really, it's this flight to quality over, you know, you have to have a business. It has to be cash flow positive, or at least you have to be in the next 12 months, you're cash flow positive. Maybe we'll give you this bridge and the terms are really onerous. 
that's a tough that's a tough thing to be in. So it's always hard to me to get the timing right because in this in the twenty you know plus years of doing this, um, as an industry, and, and you'll get this too. Like it's so hard to believe how fast things are going to turn. Your brain can't, you know, you're like, you like, know, even if you look back, like you're just like, there's no way this can grind to a halt. It's so good right now. We're making so much money. And then in two days, it completely shifts. Right? Like that's how fast it happens. So it's really hard to time it right if you're doing longer things and you want to quote unquote disrupt platforms that have been in place for many, many, many years. Feels like a uh, sentiment shifts with every single jobs report. <laughs> totally. Right. I mean, today, what the market's up 600 points or something, right? Like yesterday it was down 400, yep. right? Just on, you know, what's the, how, how hard and fast is the Fed going to go on yep. inflation, right? Wh- like, where we think Jerome Powell's mood is going to be yeah. based on the latest economic report. That's right. You know, and uh, another thing too, in terms of time going fast, this is just a funny story. Uh, like Elon Musk, right? Tesla's getting destroyed. You know, Twitter's a disaster. And he tweets something like, geez, a year ago, I was man of the year on time. You know, to your point, cycles, man, they're just, they're moving so fast right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, <laughs> the cycles of Elon Musk move at a whole different pace than the rest of the economy. I don't even try to keep up with, uh, with what the Tesla stock price is doing. I heard someone yesterday commenting that like, we look, we look forward 10 years. He might only be remembered for, for one thing. And that's, that's SpaceX. And that's a totally different narrative than people would have thought a few, you know, a few years ago. But so jumping back to, to, to mortgage check, one of the themes that popped up a lot over the last two years when volumes were through the roof and lenders were doing everything they could to maintain the volume they had and all resources were going into, Hey, how do we not leave? cash on the table? How do we like meet demand and like hit our lock periods and like get appraisals done? Not a lot of time and energy went into innovating in the tech stack. And one of the themes was when this market slows down a little bit, lenders will have the the cash the, and the bandwidth to actually look at tech stacks that help prevent the um, the bursting at the seams that, that kind of happened over the last two years. Do you think that theme is playing out or do things slow down a little bit? too much, too fast for, for that theme to play as it, you know, was kind of intended to. Yeah. It's, um, I think, I think the, the latter, I mean, I think it, it was, it was too fast and a little too harsh. And again, it's never, it's just kind of never status quo in our industry, right? It's either always raging or, you know, completely quiet. Right. And so I think most people I would describe as in hunker down mode right now, um, you know, and you, and it's definitely the the haves and the have nots, right? I think you're seeing banks, the big banks, kind of retrench a little bit again and say, okay, that was that was kind of crazy. Let me get my house back in order. Like, who do I really want to be my customer? You know, how much mortgage do I really want to do? Um, you know, some of them are to just continue to get you know find out the wazoo. It's just it's really hard to control those those nationwide operations and, and manage everything that you have. So for them, I think they're definitely looking at their tech stack and they're definitely looking at what's been going on the past 5, 10, 20 years. And let's rethink about this whole thing, right? Um, and then you have kind of the non-banks, right? Which again, I, I put into two categories. One is non-banks that also service and the other is non-banks that just originate. And so, you know, I, I think they're they're hunkering down and, and waiting to see when the lights are going to come back on, on the origination side. And I do think 
a lot of them, specifically the ones that are um, that have made a lot of money and are larger, they're definitely looking at their technology stack. I think it's I think on the origination side, it's tough. You know, LOSs are hard platforms to you know. There, there's so much compliance that has to happen, and and I do think at a high level, people understand that it needs to be more modular than it is now. And this this long end to end thing that maybe does a hundred things okay should maybe be you know twenty things that are all all great. You know, like it should should be broken up and it should be more automated and more efficient. But again, it's hard to get there. You know, like we, I, I look at a, a lot of um, players in the space. You know, we're, we're active in M and A. I, I look at essentially every deal that comes out, and um, there's no one who's really cracked that code yet. But it's clear that everybody wants that. So I, I think you might see, and again, it'll be interesting how the big banks play this. There's so much opportunity there. Again, when you look at like from a business and an investment standpoint, right? If you're going to be a startup. And you think you can land Wells Fargo or JP Morgan as an LOS? Um, that's that'll fund your whole business plan. You know, like that's a big that's a big company. Or or it'll suck all the resources out of your implementation team, and that'll be your one client at the end of that's the right. <laughs> that's right. But, but if you could do it for that client, yeah. Well, if you just did only for that client, and then you went and were able to resell that, that's a company. It's a win. You know? So, um, so that's the other thing about this industry that's really unique, right? And, and that how players get big is because you have people that drive a lot of volume and they are not good at building their own technology. And even if they do it once in a couple of years, it's too expensive to maintain it. And they yep. just, they learn these lessons over and over again because they always have new management cycling in and, you know, it comes and goes, but like they're never really in a great place where they feel like, I've got this tool and it's a differentiator. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, and so we've watched like Sagent be pretty acquisitive over the years, the, the good years and the bad years. I mean, Housing Wire covered the ISGN acquisition in, in 2019. And then last year under your leadership saw the 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 big acquisition of uh, Mr. Cooper's um, intellectual property around their mortgage servicing platform. Um, can you tell us a little more about the, the thesis on on that deal and how the integration's going? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, both of those deals were really similar and kind of you know in the fairway for us in terms of of um, our investment approach, right? Which is either increase the TAM, you know, of the platform, if you will, um, or fill in a gap that our existing customers have where they're not happy with either the technology in the space or they have a significant need. So, you know, ISGN, certainly um, on the default side, that really kind of expanded the services that we could offer to our existing customers. We also picked up that LSAMS platform, which happened to be the platform that um, Mr. Cooper was on from a core servicing standpoint. That was kind of phase one was like, okay, we need a default platform. And then in our kind of thesis with Warburg, um, on the carve out from Fiserv, it was like, okay, we got to get to the cloud. That's kind of step one. And then, and then we really need to change the paradigm of core servicing. So we did the, the default move in parallel. We kind of moved everything to the cloud. And then when we looked at, um, really how do we change core servicing? We ended up in a great conversation, um, with, with Jay Bray and Chris Marshall over at Mr. Cooper around, you know, this kind of shared vision for extending the, the the cloud thesis to the core and getting off the mainframe. 
So we, we were, we were kind of both going down this path. We had technology that, um, didn't really overlap and, and we had a lot of, uh, teams that we thought were kind of thinking the same way and could work really well together. So we did that deal. We've integrated um, a couple hundred people onto our team today, and our teams are hard at work on um, this kind of next generation of the core servicing platform. We really firmly believe will be one of the massive changes in the space. Again, if you go back and you look at the past 20 something years in mortgage tech, what were kind of the big leaps as things you know move forward and how do they really change how things are done? Um, this is going to be one because this market is just, it, it can't go on on 50 year old mainframes for that, that, you know, every year just get older and older. Like it's just, it's too big. Especially as lenders and servicers move away from the, the thought process that servicing is a, an operational function, a necessary evil once you originate a loan, but, but can be an important revenue center. We saw the IMB start retaining servicing at a really fast clip over the last three years. And that the cash from selling those MSRs over the last 12 months has been, been, been pretty important. And then we're also, as you, as you alluded to earlier, great servicing can improve uh, borrower retention and create a whole nother realm of revenue opportunities for some of the lenders if they have the right technology to enable communication and transparency. That's right. And even things that are very difficult today, you know, and, and th- there's not a lot of transparency, you know, there's, there's not a lot of, um, you know, the ability to move things around, you know, from, from an asset side, like it's amazing when you say, when you, when you zoom out, right. Our, our industry is very focused on, you know, a consumer as, as a tribute, a consumer, a home, right. But then like these things become assets that get bundled and traded for, for, many, many, many billions of dollars, right? Those investors don't have access to like what's going on, right? Until sometimes 30, 45 days later. And which is like, you know, kind of shocking. Yeah. When people really dig down into it, they're like, wait a second, what? Yeah. You know? And so when things like COVID hit, um, uh, when we had to do a lot of things around uh, payments and, and kind of really telling the GSEs and the investors what was going on, everybody kind of realized, oh, wait, this is broken, you know, because it was like when everything's fine, it was like, okay, yeah, I get my report every 30 days. But now when the world's falling apart, now you want your information in real time. And, you know, the system wasn't set up to kind of work like that. So it's been interesting to kind of be, you know, in the the thick of it um, over these past couple of years. Hey folks, we're going to take a quick pause from today's episode to talk about mortgage quality control with a message from the official enterprise loan quality partner of the Housing News Podcast, QC Ally. QC Ally has launched a brand new web series called Conversations About QC. Hosted by QC Ally's Chief Innovation Officer, Kristen Broadley, this web series spotlights leaders in the mortgage industry speaking with Kristen about how lenders are gaining a competitive advantage by driving lending clarity and certainty. The first video drops this month, and I really encourage you to check it out at conversations.qcally.com. We'll drop this link in the show notes to make it easy for you. As I've mentioned before, QC and risk management doesn't have to be a cost center. It can unlock revenue for you. Check out conversations.qcally.com. 
com for the QC Ally web series conversations about QC and back to today's episode. Yeah. Another thing I've kind of been watching and noticing with, with Sajin is the, the, the team you're building, which to me signals that you're not done. Like seeing some of the folks that I've worked with in different capacities over the years, Andrew Bonsall joining the board, Uday Devala, one of my fellas Dallasites here, uh, joining you as uh, as CTO, Courtney Thompson, Logan Drew, Renee. I've, I've, I've worked with all these people. I know how bright and 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 smart they are. Um, what are you building for? Like, what's how? What are you bringing this team together to do? And what's next? Yeah, no, it's a great question, and it's one of the most fun, you know, rewarding parts of the job, right? Is like, you know, pulling the team together, getting people either that you know and have worked with before or the, you know, exciting new names that pop up that can bring new energy, right? Putting that that team together is, is kind of one of the best parts of the gig for me. I thought three years ago, and I still believe this now, um, that Sagent is the best opportunity in the mortgage space, hands down. For a number of reasons, right? That was why I joined, you know, and uh, and frankly, why we're able to kind of build this level of talent. Because, you know, when you see that, people typically want a couple things, right? They want to love the people they work with. They want to have like a great mission, and they want to have fun, and they want to win, right? If you can kind of put those things together, then you know you're not grinding out work every day, right? You're out having a great time. That's what we have here, right? Is all of those things together with a very clear mission to just make the technology better for everybody, what we call all our constituents, right? Our employees, our customers' employees, consumers, the GSEs, investors, right? It's like it helps everybody. It all just gets a lot better. It was very clear for us what we needed to do, right? So we're, we're just, we're extremely focused on getting from A to B. And I'll use another analogy. We're at the beginning of the third quarter. You know, you ask where we're, where we're going, what are we building for, right? First quarter was um, really, you know, carve the company out from Fiserv, create its own entity, build the team. Second quarter was land a couple, you know, key customer deals, a couple acquisitions and get to the cloud, right? Check, mission accomplished. What I say to the team, it's halftime and we're winning, but there's two more quarters to go. The game is not over yet. We're halfway there, right? And then third quarter is deliver with um, Mr. Cooper on our thesis of the, the cloud core servicing platform, right? To expand our stack and have another killer offering for people that's completely differentiated from anything today. And then fourth quarter is to land those giant customers that have been telling me for years, that's what I want. When you deliver that, I'm in. Then, you know, Somebody else can run this company from then on out. I'll have I'll have considered that we'll, we have accomplished the mission. You'll have won your national championship at the end of that fourth quarter and and on to the next challenge. Exactly. <laughs> so before before we jump into the third the third and fourth quarter, earlier in the conversation we talked about the the dynamics of operating and investing in a in a cyclical market. It sounds like you have the backing of a. Uh, an incredibly strong sponsor through through Warburg. So, how do you think about the opportunities or the challenges that are presented as we as we look forward into the third and fourth quarter? And how does that impact the way you think about organic investment and inorganic growth? Yeah, good question. So, um, we have a phenomenal board, as you alluded to, and great kind of strategic partners in now you know Fiserv, 
Warburg, Pincus, and Mr. Cooper. Yep. So Mr. Cooper came in through the through the acquisition. They had a rolled equity stake. That's right. Okay. So you know we we feel really great about that team um, and and the space, right? So when 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 you look at it, we're we're well funded. We have a great you know profitable business. We're growing. We have the right team, and we have a very clear mission on what we're doing. So to a certain extent. We're a little bit insulated by the, the troubles that that are facing a lot of other businesses in the space, right? And that, this is this is the first time for me um, in twenty something years where I essentially have zero exposure to origination in the business that I'm running, which is a nice you know place to be. Versus I've always had at least half, but a lot of times. 90% of my business tied to origination, which is, which is hard, right? Because you, you have to be able to manage that up and down. Um, and again, in a, in a, in a context of always making money, right. Um, and not really, um, being in a, um, you know, a, a raising money kind of environment. So, um, so it's nice in that, you know, we're, we're really well positioned fundamentally as a business. Now, what that gives us the opportunity to do to the second part of your question is to really, um, be aggressive and opportunistic in terms of acquisitions and other things that, that may come up. And, you know, like I, I've said before, we've looked at a ton of deals. We've gotten close to pulling the trigger on some things. Um, but it really has to be the right fit for us, you know, and, 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 um, acquisitions are, are difficult. You know, they're, they're, it's usually, you know, there's there's 10 things you didn't know that you wish you knew there. You know, there, it's just like it never plays out exactly as you planned. And I think some of these companies that grow only by acquisition. End up running into trouble because it's very hard to integrate the, the platforms together. So if you look at two of the bigger entities in our in our space, I, you know, I won't name them specifically, but, you know, they've got a basket of things that aren't well integrated, that are aging every day. Um, and, you know, sometimes you think that can be helpful with customers, but it can actually hurt you, right? So at a certain point, the customer says, you own both of these things. Like, make them work together. Like, I, you know, I don't know, you know, and, and it's hard to build in enough money into your investment thesis to really do what you should do, right? Not not kind of what most people do, which is the least amount, right? Like you kind of, you want all the revenue synergies and, you know, and all the cost synergies, but you don't want to have to dump a whole bunch of money into bolting things together, right? That don't make you net new dollars, right? Yeah. I mean, you're kind of pointing out a little bit of a, a flaw or an opportunity in the, in the private equity model. It's the, um, a private equity model is, you know, not, not exactly built like venture where you throw a bunch of cash in after you close a deal or we're operating profitable businesses where the, the margins should support that integration and help find those, those revenue synergies and, and client benefits. Um, but it's also servicing debt and servicing investors. And, uh, and you gotta, you know, pick, pick your battles, pick your allocations. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, you have to, you have to go really fast and you have to make a lot of decisions, you know? And, um, and I think, um, you know, for us, the fact that we're growing organically, uh, is helpful in, in, in that model, right? Because we, we can do acquisitions, but we don't have to. And they really have to fit into the thesis of like, 
do my existing customers want slash need this? You know, does it bring in new customers that I can cross sell or is it checking the box on buy versus build? Yeah. You talked about, and I think a lot of us talk about being able to be opportunistic and be an acquirer when, when other, when others are not. And you also reference like the beauty of, you know, not having exposure to origination right now. Do you think the housing recession, whatever you want to call it, the challenging market we're in right now will create opportunities to be opportunistic in, in other areas that are feeling a little more pain than you're feeling in the servicing space right now? Or do you like, you stay tight on the, on the servicing thesis? Um, it's a great question because there's essentially, there, I think in the next six months, there's going to be a number of origination technologies that you can almost get for free. You know, like people are just going to be like, you know, can you cover my legal costs and take this? You know, I mean, and so um, it, it's definitely interesting. You know, that that being said, you, you still have this, this challenge of... Um, uh, of cash, right? And most most of these companies are are, are bleeding cash, and they're going to continue to. So the, the question then becomes, um, what am I getting with this asset versus could I just do it myself, or do I even need to do it myself right now, right? And um, and especially with the convergence of of um, let's just call it kind of the modular nat- nature of technology, where you can start saying. Um, wow, this point of sale looks pretty similar to what I do over here on loss mitigation, right? It's it's uploading docs. It's checking the consumer's information. Like, do I need two of those or should I just have one that gets called at a different time in the transaction, right? So that's a lot of the, the thinking that, that um, is going on right now. And again, in order to do that, both on, on the origination side and on the servicing side, you need to get away from these monolithic old applications that don't allow you to do that, right? Yeah. Like getting data to the right place in real time, you know, all, you need to be able to do all those things if you want to work in a modular framework. So that's why you kind of have to break the whole thing down to be able to go forward. And you definitely like nobody wants to buy anybody else's like aged tech debt right now. And, um, and one of the beauties of, growing through acquisition. And, and like my thesis from the beginning has always been like acquire, operate, grow. Like you have to grow the assets you buy. Like this isn't a, uh, you know, a portfolio approach. Like we're building a business that has to grow, but the, uh, the speed at which you can like move through the third and fourth quarters when you're using acquisitions as a growth lever is an important consideration, especially when you have private capital behind you, um, specifically private equity. We talked a little more about venture up front, but that seems to be quiet right now, but, uh, it, it is like, a, it's, you know, it's not a right or wrong answer here. But um, it's something I think a lot about, like the speed to being able to grow, in turn, the speed to which you can serve your clients with solutions that they need. M&A sometimes is a faster tool than the, the build strategy um, if you're able to identify assets where you're not just inheriting somebody else's tech debt and, and problems. I, I mean, I, you make a great point, right? And one, one of the things I've I've said recently in a number of conversations is like, you know, there's nothing more fraught than typing the first line of code for some new thing you're <laughs> going to build, right? Yeah. Like, you know, especially now, right? So it's like, you know, anything you can use to your point to get there faster, um, you you need to look at, 
right? To, and to, to, it's not just speed, it's risk, right? So everything like, I, I, I feel like a broken record sometimes, but I'm like, you know, de-risk, simplify, like in all of our conversations and everything we're doing, like make it easier, right? Do it with less risk. Like that's, that's really where we are, but go as fast as possible in that paradigm, you know? You know, because you got to get there, right? It's a race against time for sure. But the worst case is you never get there. Right? Yeah. <laughs> when you, so I'm sure you have a, you know, 23 years in the mortgage tech space, you have a robust network of other, of other operators and entrepreneurs and investors. Do you, do you feel like there's anything in your philosophy that's, um, uh, different than like, or, or like at odds with like someone that something one of your peers believes about growth and, and growing in this type of cycle and environment? Uh, it's an interesting question. I mean, I definitely think I have a, a somewhat unique, you know, perspective having kind of grown up in the industry and, and kind of being fortunate enough. I was just, I was really lucky um, to be able to run companies from a pretty young age, like and through these cycles. Right. So, um, there's a lot of hard lessons in there that I've, you know, learned sometimes more than once. Right. But it's also, I, I definitely, I don't get surprised by the peaks and valleys and the speed at, at which things move. Right. And, and so I, I think I have a, a pretty sober view of where we are, where we need to go and don't get too excited about, you know, the, the 500 points up or 500 points down, you know, any given day, right? Because this is just where you are, right? And so sometimes, you know, you have to explain that to your investors or, or you know, or other people who um, who don't understand that piece. But I think it really is key in this space because um, it's a hard it's a hard space to play in, um, and uh, it's hard to it's hard to build really great businesses, as you know, you know. Yeah, it's I, I one of the, like the the learnings that I've had over the last like 12 or 18 months, specifically to hosting this housing news podcast and interviewing executives from across the industry is the, the difference in like confidence, demeanor and approach from executives who have been through multiple cycles. And um, like that, it's just, it screams out at, at you. Like when you're talking to someone who's navigated the SNL crisis, dot com, great financial crisis, margin compression in the late 2010s. Like there's battle scars, but they don't show up as scars. They show up as learnings and the confidence to put your foot on the gas when the opportunity presents itself. Or that opportunity is an extremely like low rate refi environment, or the opportunity is a tough market cycle where you need to put your foot on the gas with investments in, in M&A or recruiting or marketing, whatever it is. Like there's a totally different approach from people who've been through a few cycles. And um, I haven't been through that many, but I often remind myself that one of the greatest gifts that I've been given was starting my career at the right before the great financial crisis and being at a large bank that reduced their headcount by 35 or 40% in my first two years there. And like just learning how to navigate that environment and, um, and do it with confidence. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, and, and the other thing I think too is, and, and you get, you get a great opportunity to talk to the people in our industry, because I, I think it is, it's, it's a really, it's a great industry in a, in a lot of ways, but there's a ton of entrepreneurs in this space and, and, and really, really smart people, especially when you're talking to the, the people who run Mr. Cooper, you know, 
Wells Fargo, whatever company you want you want to talk about, it's complicated, right? There's a lot of math in this in this business, and and at the end of the day, it's also a, a consumer focused business, right? Every you're only as good as your last transaction with these human beings, and 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 a lot of things that are out of your control, right? So it's it's never dull. Put it that way. Yeah. I mean, you're operating in a really niche B2B segment, but you're also operating in a sector that every single one of your like neighbors and cousins and acquaintances wants to talk to you about. How's the housing market? <laughs> That's right. You know, and and these, you know, what I'm seeing right now is that my my some of my biggest customers um are just really well positioned and um you know, the people at the, at the, I just have so much respect for them because, you know, at, at a certain standpoint, you know, we're a one trick pony, right? We're, we're a software provider for them. They have to, they're doing a lot of things, right? When you think about um, originators that also service, right? They got the capital markets aspect of it. They're buying loans. They, they have the consumer facing business. They have to run origination technology, servicing technology. Like there's a lot of moving parts and these are, these are hard things to do. But right now you're seeing them double down and see the opportunity and they were smart, right? And they banked some money over the last couple of years. They saw this coming and now they're buyers of assets, right? Wait, when you say assets, do you mean like MSR portfolios or like? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They want, they want to grow, right? Cause they're, you're, they, they're not growing through origination. So they're like, boom, I, I want to go and buy MSRs. Well, you know, and that's the, that's, what's exciting to me. And kind of gives a lot of energy to like, I want to make it, you know, I want to make their businesses better so that they can grow more. And then that also grows my business. Right. So it's just a really cool spot to be in and, and, to, and to not feel like, um, whoa, things are getting rough and these guys don't know what they're doing. You know, instead, they're like, I've been waiting for this. To your point, let's put the pedal down and really go now. You know, that's a cool cool place to be. It is. Um, it's notable as you look back over like multiple cycles that like the leading players do change. And it feels like we're a little bit of that bifurcation point right now. The players who were balance sheet prepared to, um, to be on the right side of bifurcation and be a, a buyer, not a seller um, when the opportunity is presented. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's um, if you go back and you look at you know, who were my who were my top customers in 2007, right? To today, all the names have changed, you know. A little bit different. Um, and and yep. they'll they'll change again, right? So and and that's the you know, the kind of the that's the interesting makeup of our industry, right? Because it's kind of like the non-banks that are very entrepreneurial, they're gonna come and go to a certain extent, some of them, based on whatever investment thesis is driving their involvement. And then the big banks are gonna stay the same. But they're going to decide how much they want to play in any given cycle based on where they are, right? Um, so it's 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 really it's a lot to keep on top of. But it's a great it's a great feeling to be, you know, twenty plus years in and know you can pick up the phone and call people that you've been working with for twenty years, no matter where they are, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's worth like cl clarifying. The top clients from 2007 have changed, and the fact that the logos that they work for have changed. A lot of those same people are still here, just under a different flag. That's right. 
Yeah. Well, Dan, I can't thank you enough for this open conversation about uh, mortgage technology, the evolutions that that you've seen, the trends in servicing, and you know, an operator to operator conversation about M and A, and you know, all the levers we think about in, in growing businesses. I'm confident that our our housing news listeners gain some value from from your experience today. I appreciate you. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was a great great chat. Always happy to talk with you, and uh, cheers to a great. 2023 for you. A big 2023. Let's do it. Let's go. Bam. Now that is a wrap of this week's episode of the Housing News Podcast. Do me a huge favor and go to iTunes and rate this show. And if you leave a comment, you better tune in next week because you might get a shout out. Thank you.